And once again, I want you to turn to Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, um, the Lord's Prayer it says, And when you pray, this is the Lord Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the power and the liberation that we find in your word. God, we ask that your presence, truly, as we've sung and prayed in song, that your presence would be in this place. God, give me uh, a mouth to speak and give all a, he an e a hearing ear to receive what you have to say to us. God, we ask you to change our lives, transform our lives through the proclamation of your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, So the reason why... Uh, I begin reading this passage not in verse 9, which is the, the, the prayer itself where we're going through uh, line by line, unpacking this prayer so we can pray diligently, we can pray intelligently, we can pray intentionally, uh, a pattern of prayer. I begin with verse 7 because I want to emphasize uh, the point that Jesus is making as he introduces this prayer. The point that he is making, he is confronting a habit that people had in his time, and in truth, is kind of a timeless habit. It doesn't necessarily have to do with that culture or that era. It has to do with human nature. Human nature wants to make a formula out of our relationship with God. That, that's the easy way. That's the way to coast. So if we can make a formula out of it, uh, always do your service this way, always pray your prayers this way, always do things this way, then you know, it's sort of like, well, I've got a formula. I'm working the formula, and, and therefore it should work, and I should, I should be fine with God. The whole of Scripture shouts against that mentality. There's no autopilot in Jesus. Everything is about a deliberate life of faith and direction toward him. And he was addressing people's tendency to make a formula out of prayer. And the way they would do it is they would say, like, just if I just keep saying this prayer. And that's not, that wasn't unique to the Jews of that time. There's all sorts of religions in the world today that still go for this sort of formula prayer. When I was raised in a traditional uh, Christian home, a, a kind of a mainline denominational home, we prayed the Lord's Prayer kind of as a repetition, right? Which is precisely what Jesus says he's teaching us not to do right? He's, he teaches us the Lord's Prayer. Before he teaches the Lord's Prayer, he says, don't just say a prayer over and over. So the next question is, why is he teaching and what is his intention? I'm convinced that his intention was to teach a pattern of prayer, that in teaching the Lord's Prayer, he's giving us, as it were, an outline for prayer so we can spend time in God's presence and we can pray the different issues and matters of our lives thoroughly, right? Now, if you pray the Lord's Prayer just as a repetition, it's over in a matter of seconds. Now, we know Jesus didn't want us to pray just for seconds because he says to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, you couldn't 
pray with me for an hour? So he, he desires for us to spend more time in his presence. How many people want to be people of prayer? How many would like to learn to stay in God's presence? Amen? So when I was learning to pray as a young man, I've shared this, you get into God's presence and you begin to pray and you pray your list and you pray everything you can think of. You're, I mean, you're praying for, for your needs. You're praying for mom, dad, brothers, sisters. You're praying for the president. You're praying for all the missionaries in the world and it's all over in about four and a half minutes. And you're like, wow, I need to, you know, I've heard stories of people of prayer who spent hours, even days in God's presence. And, 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 and I want to learn how to do that. How, how, do I, how do I do that? Well, I believe it's through developing the grace to pray, developing the ability to pray. It's, it's just like, it's like part of your physical body. You can develop a muscle by using that muscle. You can develop the ability to pray, the skill to pray. It's a spiritual skill, but you can develop that grace to pray to stay in God's presence, to remain in his presence. And that's when he can begin to speak with you and deal with you, right? We want to be people of prayer. I want to tell you, I consider it sort of job one for me as the pastor to seek that we as a church become a people of passionate prayer, that we seek God in prayer, that we shift and become people of prayer. How many want to change and become a, more of a person of prayer than you've been? Amen? Now, it's interesting. The passage that comes to me on that is when uh, Elijah and Elisha were walking along, Elisha knew that God was going to take Elijah away from him. And they're walking along, and, you know, they'd taken various trips to various places, and every time Elijah was kind of testing Elisha, you know, you stay here, I'm going to go over there. And Elijah's like, I'm not leaving, I'm staying with you, you know. And so he does this several times, and finally Elijah goes, okay, this guy's, this kid's got the stuff. So he says, what, what would you ask of me before I'm taken from you? And Elisha says, I want a double portion of your spirit. How many want a double portion? Amen. You know what Elijah responded? Now, if Elijah would have been one of those easy, quick, name it, claim it preachers, he would have said, amen, you've got the faith. You're going to get it. It's going to be, you know, you've said it and it's going to be yours. He didn't say that. Elijah said, you've asked for a hard thing. You've asked for a hard thing. But if you're with me when I go, you'll receive it. You want to be a person of prayer? You want the double portion anointing to pray? You've asked for a hard thing. But it'll be yours if you press in. It'll be yours if you press in. And that's where you begin to see the fruit of it. That's where all the promises that God has. This isn't even my message. This is just a preamble. This is free. Right? I'm going to charge you any for this. How many have read promises in the Bible where you're like, I want that. Ooh, I want that. Well, here's the thing. The promises are yours, but you have to appropriate them. It's not earning them. God doesn't say, oh, I've punched his card. He's prayed enough, so he's earned the right. That's not what it's about. It's about putting ourselves in a position to receive. Amen? I've talked about that before. So we want to we wanna appropriate these things by faith. Today, I want to speak about a major issue <laughs> that 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 has to do with all of that, and that is 
verse 11, where Jesus tells his hearers, his disciples, the next step in the prayers. We've already covered our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And then he says to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. One of the most repeated lines in the entire Bible. One of the most cherished lines in the entire Bible to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now, the thing about something that's been repeated and known and familiar to us is we can just skim right over it and not realize the impact of it and not realize what it would have meant to the original hearers, right? So you've got to put yourself, put, take off your shoes, put on your sandals, uh, sit there in your homespun clothes at the feet of Jesus, and you're listening to this. You're a first century Jew. And Jesus says, pray this way. Give us this day our daily bread. How would that have rung in your ears? What would you, how would you have perceived that prayer? Well, there's two basics that come out of it. One is short and the other is longer. The short is, obviously, Jesus intends us to pray this way every day. Right? You don't skip eating for a day unless you're deliberately fasting. Eating is a daily thing. So if he's telling us to pray, give us the, he didn't say, give us this week our weekly bread. Because if he would have said that, we know we can pray once a week. Give us this month our monthly bread. He's saying, give us this day our daily bread. We're, in, we're intended to pray, be people of prayer on a daily basis. So we're supposed to spend time in God's presence. I'm going to digress for a second on this issue of daily prayer one, one last time. How many have been in a church service, just search your spiritual memory for a second, where the presence of God was just there, or even your own prayer time, the presence, of, it was just unique. It was a remarkable time where there was the presence of God there. How many know what I'm talking about? And you walked out of there, and you felt like you're almost floating. You, you just felt like there was a fragrance of heaven around you. You know what I'm talking about? I remember when we were missionaries, uh, our first term, we didn't have a vehicle, so we had to take taxis everywhere, which is okay, because there, there were taxis everywhere. And so you just flag down a taxi and hop in the taxi, and they're cheap, and you know we're riding all over the streets of Ecuador when we're down there. And once in a while, you get into a taxi where the taxi driver was a smoker. And they spent the whole day smoking. And so you get in, and what's the inside of a taxi that the guy uses every day, all day long, and he's smoking? And he's smoking when you're in the taxi. You know, you're just kind of like, okay, I only got to go eight blocks, but I needed to get there fast. So you get out, and I get out, and I walk in the house, and Patty's like, oh, wow, you've been... In a taxi <laughs> where the guy smoked. Because the smoke gets into the fibers of your clothing, right? But that's the glory of God will do that same thing. The glory of God will penetrate the very fibers of your being. The, the Spirit of God will get into your eyes. And how you look at things, the Spirit of God will saturate your glance. The Spirit of God will affect the timber of your voice. I'm not kidding. I'm being very literal here. The Spirit of God, you get saturated in the Spirit of God, it'll change your posture. It'll change the way you walk. 
It'll change the way you greet people. It'll change your countenance. The Spirit of God will saturate you. Now, here's what God's will is for you. God's will for you is not just that you'd have these experiences, but rather that you'd have a daily encounter and his presence would be able to run very deep in you. And then it changes your personality. And then you begin become an agent of change for people around you. And that's where God does the revolution. It's the daily consistency. I'm not talking a guilt trip here, but it's the daily consistency of being in God's presence that begins to transform us from the inside out. That's what he's looking for. And that's why prayer has to be daily. Then, week after week, month after month, even year after year, God begins to shift us. Right? We're a new creature in Christ by faith when we receive Jesus, but then the long term, the transformation, and we're changed into the presence and the glory of God. So daily prayer, very important. The second thing would have hit them like a brick right in the forehead, obvious as could be, but very often it goes over our head. And now we've already talked about it during the time of communion, the Lord's Supper, and that is manna. The story of the people of Israel emblazoned in their collective thinking was the Exodus. It is the pattern, it is the, the story that defined them. Just like, just like their stories that define the American people, the, the whole thing of the, 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 the revolution and, you know, the battle of, you know, uh, Bunker Hill, and I can just say the names of the battles, you know, don't fire till you see the whites of their eyes, and, uh, you know, the Battle of Yorktown, and uh, all the, Betsy Ross, and, you know, the Star Spangled Banner, and all this Americana, and then things in the Civil War, these things that define us, and they, they help mark us, and give us identity as a people. For the, for the Jewish people, their identity was wrapped up in this pattern that was laid out in the Exodus, right? So you have the you have the, the bondage in Egypt, you have Moses coming, you have the plagues, you have the uh, the, the 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 Exodus uh, and the and the Passover lamb and the blood on the doorposts and the lintels, and then the parting of the Red Sea, right? Is everybody with me on this stuff? As we know that stuff, but there's no comparing its importance in our heart and the importance it was to the Jewish people. There's just no comparison. It's deeply in their heart. So right after they cross the, the, the Red Sea, they have a party, right? Miriam grabs her, grabs her tambourine, and they, they're dancing, and they're singing. That's, that's Exodus chapter 15. Uh, the honeymoon doesn't last long. Because here comes chapter 16, and everybody starts grumbling. Grumbling, we're, oh, there's no water, there's no food, and there's hundreds of thousands of people, not to mention all their livestock, and they're hungry. And they begin to grumble. And here comes God's answer, the manna. God sends manna, and manna, <sighs> manna, it's almost we have to go back and read it again and think about it. And think about how long the desert wanderings went. Right at 40 years. This is one of the most awesome displays of God's power in all of scripture. Honestly and truly. As awesome as the parting of the Red Sea is. It's dramatic, you know, and you got, you know, you got 
Charlton Heston and Cecil B. DeMille, and he parts the sea, and you can, you know, those are the special effects of that old Ten Commandments movie, and it's dramatic and everything else, and it makes for great, great cinema in its time. But for my money, far more powerful, and comparing one of God's works to another is a losing game, but I'm just saying, 40 years, every day, God is raining bread down enough to feed essentially a million people. Every single day. It's one of the great demonstrations of God's love and power, and it's also very mysterious. And there's a mystery that's meant to be wrapped up in it, because the first day that it comes, the Israelites go out, and what do they, what do they say? Does anybody know what they say? They say, what is it? What is it? And you know, the phrase in Hebrew, what is it? You know what it sounds like? Manna. That's the name of the provision. The name of the bread, manna, is what is it? So every day for 40 years, they're like, let's go get the, what is it? There's a mystery to it, but there's tremendous power, a demonstration of God's power. And this is the story in Exodus 16, and I'm going to give you kind of the skinny on it. Number one, it comes every single day. The manna comes every single day, except for the Sabbath, because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So on Friday, you got a double portion. Friday morning, there's enough for two days, right? But essentially every single day, the manna comes. Number two point, you can't bank it. It rots, right? So the whole old statement that people used to make is it bigger than a bread box. They wouldn't have known that in ancient times because you couldn't keep it in a box. It would go bad. The whole point was you have to depend on God every single day. There was no way to coast. There was no way to say, okay, I'm going to get my faith up on Sunday. I'm going to believe God on Sunday. There's going to be a high tide of faith on Sunday, and I'm going to get bread for seven days, and then I'm going to coast. Now are you starting to get what I'm saying about daily prayer? Right? There's no coasting. you got to go out. Now here's the thing. Under these circumstances, it's almost like you'd say, well, this is like rations. You know, this is like starvation diet, but it wasn't. See, it wasn't. Everybody got all that they needed. There was no limitations. It wasn't a starvation diet. It wasn't like, oh, you know, I need this many calories and God's just, he's, he's doling it out. No, that's not what it was. If you had a family of seven, there was plenty for you to eat that day. Eat your fill. Have all you want. But it was only for that day. There wasn't too much that you would store it up or waste it, and there wasn't too little where you'd be on a starvation diet. So this lasted for 40 years, and there's a lot to say about the manna. And at the end of this period, Moses is at the end of his life, end of his ministry. He's about to depart. He knows he's about to depart, and he goes through all, he kind of gives a, um, a lowdown looking back on all that happened in the desert wanderings, and that reminiscing is what we call the book of Deuteronomy, right? Deuteronomy is the last book of the Pentateuch. He goes, he looks back, and he explains, after it's all happened, he explains what the manna was about. This, what is it? What, what, what is God's purpose 
in sending that manna. So I want to read this, and I'm going to read all of Deuteronomy 8, because it's all necessary. But my explanation is going to be briefer than it sounds. So you don't need to worry about me spending uh, 20 minutes on every verse of this. But I want to read it because it's a whole. You've got to take the thing as a whole. Deuteronomy 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and led you, uh, excuse me, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Famous passage there, right? Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then that in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I have commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have, been, and have built good houses and live in them, and your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember that the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of of the Lord your God. Kind of ends on a note, but very important. What is this chapter about? In other words, what is the gist of Moses' explanation of the manna? Why God chose to give manna? Now, God's all-powerful. God could have done it anyway. So let's just keep that in mind. But he chose to give provision every single day the way that he did and there's a 
a demonstration of great power and great mystery to it. And Moses is explaining this. The simple way to put it, still profound, but simple that we put it across, is this is about covenant relationship. God had come into covenant relationship with his people. He had made a a pact with them. Now, like so many things that God does, we come into it like children and we're like, wow, okay. Um, God knows a whole lot more of the significance of it, but it's still binding on us on both sides. So there's, when we're in a covenant, when you're in a covenant, it's a two-way agreement. There's what God does, what God says, okay, this is what I'm going to do, this is my part of it, and this is what you do, right? So there's a, it's a two-way thing. Let's talk about what God's part is. God's part, very simply, is provision and wealth. That's it. Provision and wealth. God says, you come into relationship with me, and I'm going to provide for you. I'm your source. I'm going to provide for you. And as we pray, this chapter, as we pray uh, the Lord's Prayer, this chapter informs that prayer. So when we're praying, give us this day our daily bread, how many know, kind of in your spirit, that we're not just talking about bread, right? You already knew that, right? We just intuitively know that. We're like, God, give us this day our daily bread, and Lord, if you don't mind, I know Jesus didn't say it, but could I have some strawberry jam to go with that bread? I mean, I just kind of sneak that one in there. We don't need to pray that, right? We're just, we're praying, give us this day our daily bread. We're saying, God, help me pay my bills. Lord, help my needs be met. Help me meet the needs of my children's education. Lord, uh, you know, the the car is making us kind of ping, 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 sound. And so I, I need help with that. God, I need you to provide. Well, he's confirming here that the manna the whole time was really about the whole thing. He says, I'm bringing you into a land where there's all these things. Let me give you a kind of a a nifty little clue about the way Hebrew literature works. Verse 8 says, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive trees, and honey. Seven things. The number seven is the number of completion. So when he names those things, those seven things, he's saying, I'm going to completely provide for you. It's going to be perfect, complete, total provision. There's going to be everything. You're not going to, there's not going to be scarcity. The ground, it's not just going to be normal rocks like anything else. It's going to be ore. You're going to be able to mine it. You're going to be able to make tools out of it. You're going to be able to till the ground with it. There's going to be everything that you need. And then at the end, in that warning, that very stiff warning at the end, he says, don't bring it upon yourself that you're the one who created this wealth. He says, remember, it's the Lord your God who gives you power to create wealth. And so confirms his covenant, right? So his covenant relationship with you on his part includes giving you the power to produce wealth. There's a jillion different ways that wealth can be legitimately produced. But God is saying, hey, I'll take care of that. I'm going to provide for you. You don't need to worry about that. That's why Jesus says God knows what you need before you ask him, right? So he wants to provide for you, and that's his part. On our part, It's quite simple. Humility and profound, continual dependence. Humility and dependence. I've talked about this before. We don't like to be dependent. 
And Americans in particular don't like to be dependent. We even have a declaration that we're not. It's part of our culture. We want to be independent. We want to be, and, and, and some parts of the country are worse than others. And this is probably the worst part of the country. Because go west, young man. Go out and, you know, I'm serious. It's in the culture to be very, to be a self-starter and everybody keeps track of their own thing and everybody stand, every bucket stands on its own bottom and everything else. The problem is that's not the terms of the covenant. The terms of the covenant are God gave manna the way he gave it to humble us and to teach us his way that we would be dependent upon him. Dependence upon him is the greatest gift that you can possibly have. How many have had good times? I mean, just good times, really good times. How many have had bad times? Those hands went up quicker, right? The bad time hands went up quicker. Now, think, even during bad times, if you approach those bad times in faith, you look back, now some of those times are the dearest times in your life to you. Because they were hard times, but you look back and God brought you through. Nobody, nobody, you know, if I were to write a story, you know, just a story about a family, and nothing ever went wrong with a family. Nobody was ever sick. There's never any conflict between parents and children. There's never any lack. It was just all hearts and flowers and daisies and everything was wonderful. I tell you, that book wouldn't sell. Nobody's interested in reading a book like that. Because it doesn't, it doesn't relate to who we are. But it's in those times of difficulty that God teaches us and we, we draw closer to him. God did this with an entire nation, right? So provision of wealth on God's part and humility and dependence on his part. So how do we, how do we activate? Okay, we're reading about a covenant that they did. How do we activate the covenant for us? Because remember, we're talking about prayer here. We're talking about how we pray. How we pray. Before, we might have just prayed, give us this day our daily bread. Amen. God provide for us. Glory to God. Amen. Next line. But what we're talking about here is going deep. Recognizing God wants us to be dependent. You shouldn't be embarrassed that you're dependent on God. He knows he's God, and he knows you're not. He knows that you're needy. By the very nature of who you are, you're a dependent being. Without his thought bent upon you, you would cease to exist. He, his, your existence depends upon him. He's a benevolent father. He loves you. He wants to provide for you. But he's interested in a lot more than just providing wealth for you. He's using the issue of material lack and, and want and need and wealth. He's using all of that to draw you closer to him so that you can obtain eternal wealth, eternal provision. That's what he's about. So we stay close to him. How do we activate this stuff? How do we say, okay, God, I'm in. How do I do it? How do we activate these truths? I'm going to bring it down to two very basic things, giving and thanksgiving. Giving and thanksgiving. Everybody say those words. Giving and thanksgiving. Let's talk about thanksgiving first. Remember, the first manna came because 
the people of God grumbled. They were good at grumbling. Grumbling is a serious sin, and I want to tell you, it's completely off the grid. We don't even think about it as a people anymore. For us, it's all sins of the flesh or theft or adultery or something like that. Well, those are the real sins, right? But grumbling, well, that goes back to being American, right? I mean, it's freedom of speech. So, you know, I'm going to grumble. I mean, you see what's going on right now? I mean, it's a national pastime. You know, what's, I mean, we're at, it's worse now because we're in an election cycle, right? I mean, these are professional grumblers. You know, we pay them big money, millions of dollars to get on TV and grumble, and then there's another grumbler that gets and responds, and it's just grumbling. And then it, it, it gets in the groundwater, and it affects us. And we start to, that, how we do this, and we're grumbling to each other about the government and everything else, and pretty soon, okay, careful. You just took a lulu of a step. Woo! You just fell off. Because you start grumbling about the church, and you start grumbling about God, and you're like, whoa. That's an older pattern than 1776, folks. That goes all the way back to the Exodus. So God gave the manna <laughs> to shut them up. You know, don't be grumbling. Here, I'm giving this to you. I already had it planned, but here it is. You know what? Pretty soon they grumbled about the manna. They're like, can we have some onions with this? Seriously, they said that. They wanted onions and leeks and all these different things that grew in Egypt. They're like, we want some vegetables. We want There's all this grumbling. Look in this passage, right in the heart of it. It says, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Bless the Lord. Gratitude is essential. Gratitude is a crucial spiritual discipline and virtue to be a grateful person. You know what a grateful person is? Joyful. A person who is grateful has an outflow of their spirit. Their spirit is flowing out. You're grateful. Thank you, Father. Thank you for, and you're like, man, there's all this, I mean, being facetious. God, I just, sla I just crushed my thumb with a hammer but thank the lord it's not my right thumb because i'm right-handed i mean i mean that's being a little bit comical about the whole thing but there's no matter what's going on there's always a reason to be grateful gratitude restores perspective the enemy wants to come in and he wants what are, what are lies Lies are perspective distorters. Lies come in and they distort our perspective and they, they bend the light waves of reality so we don't see things properly and that's what ends up alienating us from God and from each other. That's, that's a lie. But when we give thanks to God, God, I thank you. I thank you for my beautiful wife. I thank you for my beautiful children. I thank you, God, that you've guided me all this stuff. You've protected me from pitfall after pitfall. I could be in trouble right now, but if I begin to thank God and begin to, joy begins to flow. And all the swill that the enemy wants to pour in your spirit can't stay because you've got an artesian well of gratitude that's coming out of you. Is everybody tracking with me? Hey, this is good preaching. I'm telling you, it's good. Right? Thank God for good preaching. Amen. Hallelujah. I never say that, but I felt like saying it today. So gratitude, right? We, 
if you're great, if you're grateful, you can't grumble, right? So you're you're being grateful to God. So that's Thanksgiving. Giving is the last part, and this is one of those things. Kind of don't blink; you'll miss it. But read the last two verses of chapter eight of Deuteronomy. It says, "And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today." you shall surely perish. What is he talking about there? Well, I want to tell you. I said it before when I talked about hallowed be thy name. Everybody under the sound of my voice is made in the image of God. God has put eternity in our hearts. And because he's put eternity in our hearts and we're made after his image, we are worshipers. We will worship Something. And what you worship, you make offerings to. In Isaiah chapter 14, uh, no, sorry, Habakkuk chapter 1, God talks about the, he talks about the enemy. He talks about the, the wicked and, and, and how they, the invading armies come in and they destroy nations and they plunder and they get all this wealth. And it says, the wicked makes offerings to his net, to his dragnet, because he likens the, the, the military machine, the army of the enemy of the, of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to being like a, a net. And he says he makes, he makes offerings and he burns incense to his dragnet. His God is that which brings him wealth in a wicked fashion. Some people, they will spare no expense on their vehicle, on their car, right? It's, for them, it's an issue of status. For them, it's an issue of, of just power and image and identity. And so they just sink all sorts of money into that. And they could, you say, well, but they're an atheist. They don't worship anything. They don't make offerings to anything. They keep all the money themselves. Is that right? Everybody's a worshiper. And everybody makes offerings. Everybody does. What God is saying here, and if you look at the fuller footprint of Deuteronomy and really all of the Old Testament, there's a constant battle between what is going to, God has given wealth, he's poured out wealth and blessing on his people, and the issue is, to whom do they make the offerings? You would think, just if you guys are, are going to want to keep the money for yourself, keep the money for yourself. You don't want to make offerings to the Lord your God. Just keep the money for yourself. But they couldn't not make offerings to idols. Why? Because everybody's a worshiper. Everybody's a worshiper. And the prophet said, from our youth, shameful idols have consumed the wealth of our land. So here's the thing. Everybody has been given a measure of wealth, and everybody makes offerings. Now, I want to ask you the question, who is your God? Covenant relationship. We offer thanksgiving, and then there's giving. I'm going to talk in the future about the relationship between giving and wealth, and I want to say this, kind of as a precursor to that day. There has been teaching that's gone out into the church over the last generation. Some people call it the name it, claim it approach. Um, some people call it the health and wealth gospel. 
And there are excesses in that teaching. There are excesses. Um, even greed among some, where it was so overemphasized, it became a distortion. And even brushing up against being a heresy. But that said, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't. Because there are preachers, even preachers who are involved in some of that, who corrected themselves, and a lot of people don't give them the credit for it, who recognize, hey, we've just got to recognize this is about giving and thanksgiving. And as we give, as we sow, we are going to reap. I'm going to tell you something that I learned from my dad as a Catholic. You can't outgive God. Now, my dad didn't get that from a name it, claim it preacher. My dad got that from the Bible. And he demonstrated it for us, his children, over and over again. That as we give to God, what we're doing is we're expressing faith. When you give, when you tithe, and you give offerings, what you're doing is you're expressing dependence upon God. We sow, and then we reap. We sow what we reap, but we reap what we sow. We reap after we sow. And there's always uh, an increase. We reap more than we sow. These are realities. These are truths. And these are woven into the fabric of Scripture. Don't get yourself where you're in one ditch and you're like, I don't want to be in that ditch. And then you swing yourself so far the other way that you're in another ditch where you, you don't recognize there are truths in Scripture. God wants us to bring our offerings to Him. And as we bring our offerings to Him, as we're faithful, it's like the last time I preached two weeks ago. You take care of God's business, and God will take care of your business. God takes care of your business on His terms to do you good in the end. Always. Always. So I want us to pray. I want us to I want us to close this time in prayer, and we're going to be taking an offering. We, we didn't take the offering earlier. I wanted to share this with you so people have a faith perspective as we're bringing an offering. But I, I, want, to, I want to say one last thing about the manna. And I was meditating on this. I was meditating on this passage. Of all the things that I think manna did for the people of God, I think it was daily anti-fear medication. Because you can imagine them hearing this from Moses. Like there's a million of us counting all our little lambs and everything else, give or take. There's all these people. And we're in the desert. And, he, and Moses says, all right, God's going to send you bread from heaven every single day. And it's only going to be enough for one day. Okay, well, great. This got us through today, but what about tomorrow? And then tomorrow they got up, the next day they got up, and there it was again. And they're like, okay, two times, that was a fluke. How about, sorry, sorry. <laughs> it was a fluke with a U. Uh, <clears throat> that was a, how do we, like, how do we trust for another day? And there it was again. And there it was again. How many have believed God, trusted God for something, God came through, and then almost within minutes, you're worried about the next thing? 
Anybody want to admit that one? Like God answered the prayer. He did the miracle. And then you're like, okay, but seriously. I mean, you're part of the Red Sea, but we're starving out here. And God's like, oh my goodness gracious, I forgot all about the groceries. Right? Whatever am I going to do? Gabriel, you got a clue on this? I mean, he's quizzing the angels for ideas. God is on his throne. And God wants to do you good in the end. Provision thing, that's easy. Breaking fear off of you and instilling faith in you is another thing entirely. Let's pray right now, and then we're going to take an offering. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you that you are the providing God. You are the God who sends us manna from heaven. Jesus is the true manna that comes down from heaven. And with him, we've got the world. We've got it all. Now, Father, right now, as a church, we come against a spirit of fear. In Jesus' name, we rebuke the spirit of fear. Everybody say this. Fear, Fear. get out. Say it again. Fear, Fear. get out. In the name of Jesus, Jesus. you are not welcome here. In Jesus' name, we are people of faith. We renounce the spirit of fear. Amen.